From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Melissa Ward trained fighter pilots, but as a woman, she wasn't allowed to be one. Instead, she went on to United, becoming the airline's first black female captain. I believe that every day there's a fight for something, for some equality, and it may not be for you. Maybe the benefit really will come for someone behind you. When you go out there and you achieve things, you know, if you're achieving them just for you, you really are cheating yourself and the people that have the opportunity to use you as a role model. You know, whether that's your kids or someone you're coaching or just someone that can see you. Inside the mind of an aviation pioneer and whether she prefers Boeing or Airbus. Then a coming of age story set at a family reunion in Denver City Park. informs me, enlightens me, and inspires me, and I look forward to being a member for many years to come now that I can give back. I am on a fixed income, but I'm glad to support. I can still do my part. I donate to CPR because you guys create great content and make my day and my drive a whole lot better. CPR is here for Colorado, and Colorado sure showed up for CPR. Thank you for your generous support during the membership drive. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Growing up, Melissa Ward considered any number of careers, including acting. And indeed, bright lights were awaiting her. They just weren't coming from Hollywood. Hey, gear down, Lenny Teclis. Okay, gear down. Eyes at the end of the runway. And flare. Beautiful. Ward, who lives in Denver, is the first black woman to become a captain at a U.S. passenger airline, United. And three decades later, she paves the way for future aviators as a flight instructor. Captain, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I want to rattle off a few more of your achievements. You were the Air Force's first black instructor pilot. Your aviation career began after a chance encounter at the University of Southern California, where you played basketball on a squad that won multiple championships. How do athletics prepare you for a cockpit? Well, the preparation for flying is not very dissimilar to the preparation for a game. So, you know, when you're preparing for a game, you learn plays, you learn the opponent and how you're going to guard them and and hopefully defend them to beat them. And so, Uh, The approach for me was quite the same. I prepared, you know, by studying and being ready for all the uh, tests, and there were numerous of those. And then there's this thing called chair flying, where you kind of mentally picture the flight, you know, before you actually go do that. And that was very similar to what I experienced, not just in basketball, but all the sports I played in. So, but I will tell you what prepared me um, from an athletic standpoint was when you play on a national championship team, you're not used to losing. So it made me incredibly competitive that I was not going to fail uh, at anything I tried in life because, you know, I'm, I liked being a champion. I liked being a winner. And so that kind of always set the tone for anything I attempted in my life. The chair flying makes a lot of sense to me. This idea that you run through the flight or the game or whatever the task is yeah, ahead of you in your mind and that that makes you better prepared. Do you still do that? Do you still fly in the chair? Absolutely. You know, even today when I'm preparing to go um, either 
um, fly myself or participate in training in the simulator. And I'm just really playing the role of captain or first officer for a student in training. I always study and make sure that I know exactly what controls I should be touching at what time and in what order and the checklist that I either have to read or respond to. Uh, you never stop studying as a pilot. You just, you never rely on, oh yeah, I've been there, done that. I know what I'm doing because the book always changes anyway. I mean, you literally in your mind, you're, you, you don't just go through it in your mind. You're actually, your hands are moving during chair flying where oh. you would normally be touching controls. Ah. Well, you spoke this month at the National Gay Pilots Association annual conference saying... I'd like to leave a legacy by being a part of something that's bigger than myself. Maybe mentor someone or inspire someone to go out and do something bigger and better than I could ever have dreamed of. Melissa, were there messages from society as a gay black woman? or messages from your industry specifically that you had to fight not to internalize or that you did internalize and had to get rid of? Oh, absolutely. There were pressures. Uh, I like calling myself the three for one minority. And, (laughs) you know, it's the the first two being black and being a woman. You can't hide that. And so people have preconceived notions about who you are and uh, you know, for me, they either thought that I, I couldn't fly or I, w- I had achieved a certain rank or position or award because, you know, they were trying to take advantage of minority status. And so I didn't care what people thought. I knew I would always be qualified for anything I got. Hmm. But when you add the gay portion to that, which is something that you you have a choice to hide or not, for many years of my career, I hid that part of myself because I just thought, you know, I don't want someone else to, you know, have another reason to believe that I don't belong here. And then, you know, I came, I finally came out fully in my entire life in 1999. And that was when my you know, my partner, who is now my wife, when she actually got pregnant with our twin girls. And I realized, you know, I work in a space that's the size of a closet and I refuse to live in one anymore. You just can't deny yourself, the person you're in love with and children. And you, you, you just have to be out there and everyone else be damned if they you know, don't like it. Hmm. How old were you then when you came out fully? Oh, that would have been, now you're making me do mental math. Uh, <laughs> that would have been, I probably right around 35 years old. 35, so it was a yeah. long time. And now I have was partially out, but not professionally. And so yeah. that was right. Yeah. Because I believe our girls were, I think we were 36 when our girls were born. You know, it's interesting. You say you can't hide being a woman or being black. You know, I, I'm just speaking from personal experience. It's not all that easy sometimes to hide that you're gay. I mean, people kind of read me all the time. They certainly read me as a kid before I read myself. So, you know, I just it it can take some effort to be in the closet. Oh, absolutely. You know, in fact, it's funny that you say that, because if you ask my high school um, folks that I went to uh, high school with, all of my classmates, they'll tell you that they knew I was gay. And I didn't know I was gay in high school. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? You would have saved me a lot of heartache (laughs) and trouble instead of trying to figure this out all myself in college. Um, But, you know, you're absolutely right. And obviously, you know, there are characteristics that people will automatically attribute 
to you that say, oh, you must be gay because you're assertive and you're not afraid to speak up and you walk tall. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of straight women that do that too. Mm. That's just your preconceived notions. But I never really tried to hide my personality. I just didn't fully disclose uh, the rest of the story. So You flew fighter jets in the Air Force at breakneck speeds. But you've said cracking the sound barrier, so like more than 750 miles an hour, is kind of ho-hum? <laughs> you know, well, so first of all, I didn't fly fighter jets. The training jets do, uh, one of them actually, the T-38, uh-huh. did break the sound barrier. We did have a flight, the boom flight that we would all fly. But I actually was just only qualified to go learn to fly uh, fighters. Unfortunately, at that time in the Air Force, really in all of the military women weren't allowed to fly in combat so Uh i never actually had the opportunity to fly a fighter jet i just instructed in our initial trainer you know which was still aerobatic and and i trained a lot of other guys to go fly their fighters but i never got the opportunity i had an offer at one point in time in, in about 1993 to actually go fly when women were allowed to fly in combat i was actually a offered a position to go fly an A-10, but I, eventually I, I just turned it down because it just wasn't um, in the cards for me at that time in my life uh, to go fly in a unit in Pennsylvania when I lived in Chicago. Uh-huh. So. so, gosh, there's a, a few things I'd like to follow up there uh, on. So how is breaking the sound barrier ho-hum, first off? Yeah. You know why? Because it's more dramatic for the people on the ground than it is... <laughs> Nothing happens in the airplane. It, it, it There's no boom uh, when you're flying it. And the speed dial, the airspeed indicator, does just like kind of a little bit of a flick. And your instructor says, oh, yeah, there's the, you just cracked the sound barrier. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was exciting. Mm. <laughs> I was like, can we go do the loop again? I mean, that's more exciting to do the aerobatic stuff instead of, um, you know, to go fast. It really, I've broken it twice. One was intentionally when we did, you know, we all had one ride where we got to do it. And then one was unintentionally. It was in a formation flight. I was uh, the second aircraft in a two-man ship. And I was complaining to my instructor. I go, God, I am all over the place. I can't seem to stay right in position where I should be. Hmm. He's like, that's because we're going faster than the speed of sound and we're not supposed to be. <laughs> and so my lead, my lead had accidentally gotten the speed out of control. He goes, so you're actually doing a really good job for the speeds we're flying. So I was, so one was intentional, one was unintentional oh. and both were whole home. So yeah, probably a lot of noise on the ground though. I imagine. Okay, and then to this idea that you would train men, you would get them ready to fly fighters, but women were not allowed so much in those roles. What a, like a crock of BS. (laughs) Well, you know, there's a lot of crock of BS for women uh, as we progress through the 80s and 90s, and, and bit by bit, we peel back that onion and you know, work for our opportunities. I didn't take it that way though. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we all had a role. It was a, it's a teamwork thing. When you're in the military, you don't belabor the, um, you know, the idea that, oh, someone has an opportunity I don't have. You know, you just do your job and you do it really well because, you know, in the end, we're all on the same team trying to protect, you know, our country and for the freedoms for everyone to have. So you don't think of it that way. I, I didn't think of it like I was, being restricted i just looked at okay what can i fly here's my list and and i chose they were all great opportunities and so 
you know, I, and, and in the end, flying um, the cargo planes that I eventually flew in the military really prepared me for the commercial career that I had. Whereas the gentlemen that did fly fighters, they had a little bit rougher transition when they left the military to go fly commercial. It's a little bit different for them to have to learn how to brief a crew and work with flight attendants and people, which is something we did all the time Mm -hmm. uh, in the military on the cargo planes. But you were fighting for freedoms that weren't fully yours. Oh, that's true. But I mean, I, I, I believe that we do that every day. Uh, I believe that every day there's a fight for something, for some equality, and it may not be for you. It might be for someone, maybe the benefit really will come for someone behind you. When you go out there and you achieve things, it's, you know, if you're achieving them just for you, you really are cheating uh, yourself and the people that have the opportunity to use you as a role model. So you should always be achieving something for somebody else. And, you know, whether that's your kids or, you know, someone you're coaching or, or just someone that can see you. So, you know, I, I believe you should always be thinking of the greater good. Uh, Okay. So you flew cargo and then you, and military transport, I guess. And then you went on to commercial airliners. Did airliners feel and did cargo feel like lumbering in the sky compared to the kind of flying you'd done before? Uh, That's that's actually a great description, lumbering. I went from the smallest aircraft in the Air Force inventory to the second largest. And so uh, it was a huge transition. But with it came a lot of perks, like, um, you know, being able to fly overseas and across the ocean and to be able to um, actually have a weather radar and know (laughs) where to fly to avoid the bad weather as opposed to just looking out the window and saying, oh, I think we should go away because there's a big thunderstorm there. So uh, there were a lot of perks to lumbering across the skies instead of being able to, you know, do all the little zippy stuff that you do in the small jets. (laughs) But still, uh, maybe a different kind of thrill, but still a thrill. Do you remember your first flight as a passenger? Were you like, did you fly as a kid in commercial I, airplanes? I did fly as a kid. I don't remember it, but I got to tell you the story. My mom remembers it quite well. Uh, I think I was maybe three, and my sister was four, and my sister and I were sitting next to each other, and my mom was in the row behind us, sitting next to a man. I believe it was a configuration of just two, and then middle seats, and then two. And it was um, both of our first flights. And I was super excited. And my sister, my older sister, was not. (laughs) And as we rolled down the runway, my mom said that I yelled at the top of my lungs, we're going to crash, we're going to die, we're going to crash, we're going to die. And I'm just laughing. And my sister's crying. And the man that was sitting next to my mother said, the mother of that child must be so embarrassed. (laughs) And she said, I am. (laughs) (laughs) I was a little and, you know, she said, but it was unbelievable how I was unfazed by flying. And, you know, here's my sister terrified next to me and I and terrorized even more by me. So she said she said I always wanted to fly planes. I talked about it when I was young. I don't remember it, but and she might be making it up. but I don't think she is. Uh, is she making up the stories that I've heard that you leapt off garage roofs in your neighborhood as a kid? That is not made up. That I do remember. <laughs> um, yeah, I did that. Uh, I did a lot of things when I was 
growing up, I was ultra tomboy. So, uh, yeah, I did some fun things. I came home with, you know, cuts and bruises. Uh, one time she thought I'd put my eye out because I came home with a big towel over my head. It was bloody. And I had just run into a pool playing football with the boys and didn't even need stitches, but it bled a lot. So, yeah. Oof. <laughs> she, Oof. My mom doesn't make up any stories. She's very literal. She does okay. not. She does not lie. <laughs> she, she's a doctor, and she took that oath very seriously. So that's true. I jumped off roofs. I am going to put my aviation geek hat on for a while. When I was a kid, my mom referred to me as my son, the Cessna, because I would take, I would take moving boxes and I'd flatten them out and I'd turn them into wings and I'd cut flaps in them and things like that. I think it helped growing up next to LAX and having a grandfather who worked for Douglas Aviation. Okay, so aviation geek questions. Which do you prefer, Airbus or Boeing? I prefer Airbus. Uh, favorite? Much better airplane. Much Okay. Uh, we're going to ignore the fact that United at one point owned Boeing and or Boeing owned United and it was called Boeing Air Transit. We're going to ignore that fact. Uh, right. Favorite, <laughs> favorite airplane of all time? Wow. Um, you know, I think I'm going to say the Boeing 727. Oh. It was hard to it was hard to land, so when you landed it really well, it was a, a great achievement. Long skinny thing with engines on the back. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you could work for a defunct airline like Pan Am or TWA or People Express, which would you have chosen? None of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. United Airlines. I mean, you know, whatever you call it, whatever you wanted to call it back in the day before it was United, I would have worked for them. Okay. I hear loyalty there. Uh, do yes. You, do, you, <laughs> do you have a favorite challenge as a pilot? Like, you know, there are crosswind landings where planes come in and they look like they're almost perpendicular to the runway. Is there a particular terrain what do you what do you sort of uh, love to see? The biggest challenge is landing in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, on a very short runway at six thousand feet of altitude, usually snow covered or icy, and trying to make a good landing, not just the Navy landing, but a really <laughs> nice one. Uh, you instruct and still log hours in the cockpit, as we've said. Do you like addressing passengers on the loudspeaker? It's my favorite thing to do, more than flying. No! <laughs> Are I'm you not kidding. I love making announcements. I actually stand in the first-class cabin and personally greet my first-class passengers because there's only like 12 of them, <laughs> and giving them FaceTime with the captain. That's, that's my first favorite thing to do. And in lieu of nice landing, which hardly anyone says anymore, I would like it when people get off the plane and say, say, your announcements were amazing. I'm like, thank you. Because <laughs> I people want to know what's going on. And you should make nice announcements. So, no, I love it. And I try to, you know, it, it, the, there are two things that are important. Land nicely and sound good on the radios or the PA. So that's, yeah, I love making announcements. Okay, noting that... Melissa is trying to take my job. Just standing, just <laughs> making a note of that real quick. Have you actually, have you considered broadcasting? 
Never. Never. All right. Okay. No. Uh, can kids still visit the cockpit? They can on the ground if the airplane is at the gate. We are no longer allowed to have visitors off the gate just okay. due to security reasons. But we do. We invite them up either ahead of time or after the flight. And um, specifically, if it's an unaccompanied minor, we like to invite them up, take a picture and text it to their parents so that they can see they're on the airplane. Oh. What do you like least about the job? Hmm, that's kind of hard. Is there anything I don't like about my job? Um, oh, just please well, say please say something so I don't feel totally <laughs> bad about mine. Yeah, you know. <laughs> okay, so the all-nighter flying is no fun. Uh, luckily, I'm senior enough not to do that anymore unless I want to. But that is the flying, um, you know, some of the odd hours or, you know, the long, long days. That's tough. Mm-hmm. It's always tough, yeah. Whenever you're tired, it's tough to fly an airplane. In the Air Force and at United, I'm curious what you had to learn to become a good instructor. I mean, just because you're an expert at something doesn't mean you're able to teach it off the bat. What have you learned about um, t- about teaching? The best instructors uh, realize that if your student's not getting it not doing well it's your fault not their fault and so i always say change the voice if you're teaching them one way and they can't figure it out teach them another way find the way to connect to make the light bulb go on and then realize if if they don't get it be grown up enough to move them to another instructor whose different voice might be the voice they need so you should take it personally. It is your fault as an instructor if your student is not doing well. It's not about what you're saying. It's about how you're saying it. And you've got to find the right way. Does that happen with any frequency? Uh, it did in the Air Force, for sure, because the plane that I instructed on, my students had never flown or they had very little flying experience. So you really did have to hmm. teach a very basic things. In the Airbus... It's more subtle. Um, it could be some you're just trying to get someone to improve them or maybe to make nicer landings than what they're currently making. But it's still the same concept. Uh, find a way to describe it. And if that doesn't work, find another way to describe it to get them to understand what you're doing. So I practice this all the time when I take people on tours in the simulator and I am trying to teach people who have no idea what flying is like to take off and land. Mm-hmm. And I practice on them so that I'm really good with the pilots who do come through. I, there's an inherent humility there. Did you have to learn that or do you think that came naturally to you? Oh, no, nothing comes naturally when you're becoming an instructor. You learn <laughs> by failure. It And, you know, the worst, you, the one thing you don't want is for someone to say, oh, God, please don't let me fly with her. She's a terrible instructor. So it's a personal pride thing. You want people to say, oh, wait, I really do want to fly with Melissa because I learn so much every time I fly with her or I do better when I fly with her. And so it was definitely an acquired taste for me. I had to learn to be a good instructor and it took, you know, several years. On several occasions, you've mentioned landings. Are those the most difficult part of flying? It's the most difficult part to do extremely well. Mm -hmm. It's not that hard to land an aircraft unless, you know, you have some 
other conditions that make it tough, like hot days, crosswinds, low weather, nighttime, short runways, um, wet runways. But to to do it well, and and actually this is one of the things that I tell the pilots that come through United every time in the simulator, I go, you can land safely and clunk it on, or you could actually take pride in what kind of landing you do. So actually work hard at it. Don't just say, oh, that's good enough. Never be satisfied. Because there's nothing like landing an airplane and no one knows you touched down. That is a really great feeling. Oh. So, yeah. Do you think much about climate change? I think that we are polluting the world at an alarming rate. And my company is doing a great job trying to change that. But it is a change that will not come easy or quickly. And I think it's the responsibility of all of us to try and find those alternative fuels that will conserve our planet for future generations. Absolutely. It's hard to know you're burning gas at an alarming rate in your everyday job. Mm -hmm. When you spoke at the National Gay Pilots Association, you said, quote, as I approach the final years of my career. I realize that no matter what you accomplish in your entire life, it only lives on as long as you do. And so it really is about leaving a legacy. United is going to leave a legacy as being the best airline in the history of aviation. But more importantly, United is going to leave a legacy about the best place anyone could ever work for, especially members of the LGBTQ plus community. But Captain, there seems to be a real backlash as well against DE&I work. Do you worry that backlash will lead to backsliding, backtracking? Absolutely, I do. I am alarmed at the the precedence of this country to remove precedence. We are re-adjudicating decisions made, important decisions made in the history of our country, and saying we know better than what someone before us did. And I do see us moving in an alarmingly wrong direction. Um, and, you know, my biggest fear, for just from my personal level, is that someone will try and take away the right for gay people to marry. And same-sex marriage is incredibly important to me. I, I saw a sign recently, and it said, my rights shouldn't infringe upon your rights. It's not like it's a piece of pie. And so, you know, there should be enough for everyone. And so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very concerned. I'm concerned about the direction that we could be going, um, not just as a country, but even the world. Uh, there are some terrifying dictators that really want to rule the world. And um, it is really scary. What still needs to change in commercial aviation to make it a more diverse, more welcoming, frankly, industry? Uh, it, it's absolutely down to exposure. So women and minorities and women of color, um, they just need to have that opportunity. And the opportunities are scarce because of either um, exposure or because of financial obligations. And so mm. that's one, one of the things I'm incredibly proud of with United Airlines creating the Aviate Academy, because they're giving pathways for people to be in this career field that before would have immediately dismissed it because 
they didn't have the money or the opportunity to do so. Who's a role model? Who's a hero for you before we go? And you can name your mom. Wasn't your mom the first black woman to graduate from the University of Chicago Medical School? She was definitely one of two. I don't know. I They might have been in the same class, I believe. Okay. So, yes, she was. And she's absolutely my role model. And it's not because she was the first or one of the first uh, black women to graduate from the University of Chicago, but because she did it at the age of 39 and or was it 36 i can't remember but she was in her 30s and i mean you know to go back to medical school when you have three kids and you're still feeding them and washing clothes and being a traditional mom and then to excel at that it basically told me you can do anything you want in life. And if you wake up one day and it's not, you're not doing what you want to do, change it. And so, you know, when you have someone that's that overachieving in your life, everything seems possible. And it was, I, I honestly credit everything to my mom and just what an amazing role model she was for me. Well, Melissa, if you ever fly a plane I'm on, promise to come into coach, will you? Absolutely. Okay. I'll move. I'll take that extra step. Just <laughs> why don't you just upgrade? Uh huh. All right. <laughs> the ride in the front seat so much better. <laughs> <laughs> part captain, part salesperson. Um, thank you so much, Captain, for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. United Captain Melissa Ward of Denver. Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin is the airline's longtime theme. Fun fact, the piece premiered a hundred years ago, February 12, 1924, at a concert in New York. And we'll be right back with a coming-of-age story set in Denver City Park, This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A flower grows in Colorado that, depending on elevation, can smell perfumed or pungently repulsive. Meet the dazzling Sky Pilot. A relative of flocks, the Sky Pilot's intensely blue to purple petals provide a sharp contrast to its brilliant orange stamens. Above 12,000 feet in the alpine tundra, wildflower enthusiasts enjoy its sweet fragrance as much as the bees that pollinate it there. At lower elevations, where bees have lots of other flowers to occupy them, the sky pilot smells of rotting flesh or skunk to attract pollinating flies. At any elevation, its sticky leaves discourage ants and herbivores from eating them. Follow your nose to find sky pilots, but keep your eyes wide open as these blossoms are fleeting. Each is in full bloom for just about a day. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With support from Coble & Company. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's go to the park now with Colorado author William Henry Lewis. His short story about a teenager at a family reunion is called Germinating. It takes place on a summer day in Denver. Actor Lavor Addison brought the tale to life recently for stories on stage. What I often remember first is the dust and the visible heat of City Park 
and the weight of the mile-high air on some of the older relatives who sat under large oaks, you know, trying to find themselves free of their breathlessness and discomfort. I remember relatives grouped by common names, similar smiles, but I also remember never noticing so many different shades of brown skin in one place. I remember there being too many people, too large a mass for me to receive any one part of them to mark with lasting clarity beyond that day. Then I remember they're my family. The folks migrated to that park in Denver much the same way we had moved north and west, drifting from post-reconstruction, traveling with a sense of promise and unhurried urgency. They came slowly to Denver, as old people do, on trains, not planes, driving reliable Chryslers and Chevys and riding in back seats with pillows and magazines to ease the wear of the long trek. I was sitting on a concrete bench watching my relatives who were holding paper plates of cold chicken and looking for someone to embrace. My father sat next to me and told me what it was like to be them, old and still outliving the rest from year to year. A whole group, a whole park full, an entire family missing somebody to hold. I gave this some thought, but I was also doing my best to look indignant for having been forced to be there. My father's words rolled off me, and soon I was into my chicken, greasing my cheeks. Just like every other child your age, sit and eat, tend to yourself. That better be the best chicken you ever eaten in your life, boy. The voice from behind me cut into my ears. I lowered my plate to my lap. I turned around and rose. Hello, <laughs> Aunt Lynn, I, I mean, Laura Linda. I hugged her small body. I was so glad that you decided to come. I, I didn't think you would. My great aunt, Laura Linda, who hated to be called Aunt Lynn, stiffened slightly in my grasp and then broke free. She tried to appear as if she were looking for something in her purse. Her purse was very large. I thought to myself it might be funny if I had asked, was it meant to carry everything she had brought with her from California? But I looked at the rich, serious tone of her light brown face, and I knew she wouldn't laugh. In the shade of low branches, her posture avoided an easy guess of her age. She showed years, but I, I couldn't tell how many. My grandmother used to tell me that her sister liked to stand in the shade because it showed off the tone of her light caramel-rich skin without the haze to give it a yellowish appearance. I stood there wondering what to say. Her face wore an expression that made me feel she was about to say something, but she just looked at me. I was too young to realize it then, but I think she had a way of making you speak first to her. A real lady never speaks first. I stood there, not knowing that it was meant for me to say something. <laughs> well, Lynn, huh. you tried that potato salad. <laughs> My father started in. Old Gale, mm, done it up again. He ate while he spoke, alternating food with words and pocketing chunks of potato in his cheeks to enunciate what she craned to hear. And how about that chicken? Mm, damn! I noticed that Aunt Lynn had no plate to hold, and she wrung her hands. She looked like she didn't want to be holding anything. My father continued to eat, not paying any attention to whether or not she answered. Hey, Dad, um, I said, I need some, some Kool-Aid. Um, you going over to get drinks? <laughs> no, sir. Chicken too damn good. You got young legs, boy. Go get it yourself. 
We three stood there for a long moment, my father still eating, Aunt Lynn and I watching him eat, both of us understanding the situation. She didn't say anything. She looked at my father, and he stopped eating. I figured that she must have practiced that look for a long time to get that expression. <laughs> and it must have been one that I was raised to recognize because it made me want to leave. Yeah. Then again, maybe it wasn't really that look, but instead my own uneasiness. I only knew the weight of her stare. With a quiet voice made audible by the shakiness of it, she leaned to my father and gestured with her hand, Roland, go get some beer. <laughs> and if a lever had been pulled, my father went off to the beer cooler. I watched him walk away, thinking how out of place he looked at this reunion. Bright blue seersucker with a red bow tie. He always had an appearance of forced change about him that led people to say, Roland, you have changed. Haircut? Lost weight? Last year, it was yellow pants and a green double-knit shirt. Aunt Lynn was looking straight ahead, her hands still half raised in that gesture that had sent my father off. She was looking at something far away in the rippling haze of heat beyond the shade of the oak trees. Your father, she reached for something in her purse, he isn't a bright man, is he? Her concern for wrecking whatever conception I had of my father was secondary to whatever she was looking for in her vinyl bag that she carried like a baby. From her purse, she pulled out a large lace handkerchief. The handkerchief was fine, like perfect. And yet this moment was uneasy to me. The air, the, the mass of relatives, my, my father, Aunt Lynn's strange green hat, which I just noticed, I only had a feeling that I should say something. We looked funny, both silent, both still standing. Yeah, I mean, yes, that is sort of weird at times. Something better than that. She caught my eye before looking away. Weird? I didn't say weird, child. She flashed the cloth. Not bright is what I meant. Dim-witted. Understand? Just suppose... That's the bear, auntie, <laughs> you know? With that tie, he does look kind of simple, though. I said it quickly and made an attempt at my neglected chicken. Son, some people look simple, and some people just are. <laughs> she seemed satisfied with herself and began to fold her kerchief into a neat triangle. She dabbed the cloth roughly around her lips, unknowingly removing bits of flaking makeup. I looked at Aunt Lynn for a long while. You really shouldn't stare at old people, she said. Just noticing your hat. I told her it looked nice. Shouldn't lie either. <laughs> she took her hat off and sat it in her lap, and she began to poke at it with her hairpin that held it there in place. It's amazing, you know? The youth of her hair, her face. She looked at me with a curved mouth, and, and I thought she must have smiled like that when she was a child. It's an ugly hat. I didn't have to worry about looking my best. Isn't that the hat that Aunt Ginny gave you? She turned to me quickly at the mention of my other aunt. Yes. Her sister Ginny had always been too flashy for Laura Linda's taste. 
Jenny carried clutches. Laura Linda had a purse. And she only wore a light foundation makeup to highlight her brown skin. Jenny had proudly brandished red lips throughout her life. I looked at her hair, knotted up neatly, perfectly. It was too shiny, as if it weren't her own. I couldn't help staring at it. I, I had never seen her without a hat outside of her house. I wonder where your father has gone off to. She began working to put her hat back on. She was just filling Dad's space. A true lady holding up her part of the conversation. I felt she didn't really want me to answer and I didn't want to reply. She was still struggling with her hairpin and all I could do was watch her. Shouldn't stare at old folks. I reached to help, but she pulled away and quickly jabbed the pin into her hat on her head and it stuck out at an odd angle like, like an antenna. I wanted to laugh. It was obvious that it was not as perfect as she would have wanted, but she had done it herself without any help. She didn't need to look in the mirror. Someone yelled about getting more pictures. Someone else hooted about getting more beer. They were good folks. They wore their best leisure clothes, hugged each other. They laughed with their teeth showing. You don't understand what's going on here, do you, child? She watched the wind sweep the grass. She just sat there, waiting for me. Well, I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of people here I, I've never seen. I, I don't know them. She sighed and clutched her purse. Good. That's good. She turned to me, and her face looked weakened. I thought she might cry, but she put her handkerchief to use and covered her face. Somehow it prevented tears. That's very good in a way, she breathed. It's really not worth it. You're too young to know it, but these folks, they don't really matter. It seems like you can hug them all now, get to know them for a few days, but soon they'll leave. They'll be gone. Well, <laughs> we can't always be together, Auntie, I laughed. That'll be an awful big house if... No. There was a slight wheeze in her voice, but then strength. No. They will leave you. Auntie, I, this is the last one of these damn things I'm coming to. It's not worth it. I spent my whole life getting away from these crazy people. And you know what? When I come back, they don't understand what's going on. Trifling Negroes. They're worthless. They just leave you. It doesn't even matter. They never had any class anyhow. There was sweat at her temples. And she looked off towards some of the older relatives near the drinking table. Soon, they'll all be gone. Take your pictures now. Only way they'll ever look like somebody. For a moment, I lost the sense of where I was. All those relatives seemed to be floating through the park, blending into and separating from one another, and the visions of those who were dead lurched out of the past. I could envision the mass of my family at some point dispersing and slipping from me as I grew older, carried away on silent waves. I imagined myself on some expanse of water, watching them drift to different bodies of land. There was Aunt Lynn, sitting on a beach at sunrise, much like the beaches my grandmother had told me about, where they used to go as girls and collect seashells. I envisioned Aunt Lynn sitting on that beach, 
holding her arms to her body as if their frailty might make them fall off. She had her face held high, not smiling, but also not frowning, not appearing to want more than what she had right then. She was looking into the sun. She was the only one on that beach. I don't like pictures all that much, Auntie, I said, feeling the need to breathe. Well, you better start. She seemed surprised at me, and I, I couldn't meet her gaze. Her voice came out clear and definite. You'll come to care about them. You have to. You won't even know it. You reject them, but you can't get away from them. I was hearing her, but I was also editing a picture in my head of my mother, father, sister, and me as the only passengers on a cruise ship just off the shore of that daydream beach where my aunt was. I wasn't sure where we were going. It felt like a long way away, though, and I couldn't swim. You don't like your mother, do you? No, I, I, I do. I, or your father? It's all right. I figured you were lonely. That's why I came over. Not good to hate so much and be so lonely. Not yet, child. We sat there and stared at parallel horizons, each with our own focal point, but both past the shade of trees, the overflowing trash cans, and even further beyond the near flawless green of the golf course. If we had been on a pier, we might have been looking at the same harbor entrance for different boats to arrive. You don't like me much, do you? She didn't look at me. I don't know, Auntie. You better not. You better off that way. She gave out another life-tired sigh. Besides, you kids these days, you don't know how to treat a lady. You stare too much. And then she giggled like she had let out another secret. We looked at each other for a long time, my Aunt Laura Linda and I. Shouldn't stare at old folks. <laughs> I smiled. That really is a nice hat you've got, Auntie. She looked at me as if she meant to break my confidence in the compliment. I thought she might tell me to leave, but then her face softened, just a hint, and that young girl's secret smile. She looked away for a moment and then back. Her fingers were working the leather straps of her purse in the absence of something to hold. Maybe we both felt like hugging each other right then. I got up slowly, not worrying to say sorry. I went off, got Laura Linda a plate of chicken, thinking how, when I got back, I was going to ask her about hunting for seashells and how she would take all afternoon to tell me. I would listen quietly, not bored, not bitter, sitting there with her, smiling. Actor Lavor Addison, who lives in Creed, he read Germinating by Colorado author William Henry Lewis for stories on stage, which melds theater and literature. Finally, we had some visitors recently, fifth graders from Gust Elementary in Denver. They won a perfect attendance contest and got to visit CPR News as a field trip. While they were here, I showed them how our studios work and opened up our microphones. I wanted to know what music kids today are listening to. We're going to share their favorites in the coming weeks. 
For today, let's have Athena close out the show with her pick. Um, my song is Diamonds by Rihanna. Shine bright like a diamond. And why did you choose it? Because um, some of my friends call me Diamond. Oh, is there a reason? I don't know why. It's an awfully nice thing to be called. Do you sometimes feel like a diamond? Yes. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Anthony Cotton. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and KRCC. 